0: Hello, this is Ben Payton, and you're listening to The Build Podcast. Thanks to Ben Payton, who we walked the beat with in our last podcast, taking a look at the noughties. This time we're heading back to 1989 with the man from Special Branch. He's an acclaimed actor, a best-selling author, and he's got some fantastic memories from starring in two series of The Bill. I'm joined now from Canada by Chris Humphreys. Chris, welcome to The Bill podcast. Oh, it's delightful to be here, Oliver. Well, I'm spoilt for choices to where to begin. They say the world's a stage, and you've graced many a stage all over the world. You've starred in feature films, hundreds of television credits, but perhaps we can start by talking about the fact that you are a
1: best-selling author. Well, that's right, yes. I'd always written something, and I'd always wanted to be a writer and held off doing it for all the reasons one does, you know, the the fear factor, and oh, I can't really ever achieve that. But I just had this cracking idea for a novel. And I thought, well, you just blow it. I'm going to dive in and do it. So I did. I had a really good idea. I wrote a novel about the man who killed Anne Boleyn. The French Executioner was the eventual title. It turned into this absolute sort of rollicking, crazy, madcap Chase with dark villains and, uh, wonderful, bright heroes and, and a lot of magic. And it, it was a, it was a romp, really. And I didn't think anyone but my mother and my wife would ever read it. But in fact, an agent took me on and, and then Orion, the publisher took me on for a two book deal, which meant I had to write them another one. And suddenly there I was launched as a, as an author and haven't looked back, really. I mean, I've dovetailed it with, a uh, I've, I've kept up the acting, you know, sometimes, but it was nice to, in a way have that monkey off my back you know I didn't need so much to be an actor I didn't need to subject myself to the less exciting side of being an actor you know the acting is always great it's the business of acting can be a problem sometimes and and so to have the outlet of being able to make up my own stories all the time was fantastic
0: how did it feel when you held the finished article in your hands for the first time that must have been a special moment
1: It was. And, you know, I have to say, Oliver, it it never actually really goes away, that moment, when you hold the result of perhaps a year or more of work in your hand, and all those hours sat at your desk by yourself, making stuff up and, uh, you know, talking to your imaginary friends. But the first time, yes, you, you think, well, maybe this is why I'm here. Maybe that's, the, you know, I've justified my place on the planet in this, at least, if I never do anything else, you know.
0: Well, you've managed to combine acting and writing. Um, you've had an extraordinary career doing both. Or has there ever been a moment where one has clashed with the other and you've ended up not being able to do something?
1: Yes, there have been moments when I've chosen to write rather than act, um, partly because writing is actually paying my living much more these days, and and there are things like contracts and deadlines. So sometimes I can't do an acting gig that I might otherwise want to do. I, I definitely go away less in theatre now. You know, I used to love going away and doing um, theatre work, I, st- I still do it sometimes. But I try to stick much closer to home because home is where I write my books. For many years when I was first writing, I defined myself as an actor who wrote. And now I think I define myself as a writer who acts. I shall probably be defined in the end by, by perhaps my writing over my acting. But who knows? Maybe I'll have a, a late flurry and become, you know, the old codger actor who suddenly lands the, those great roles. I don't know. <laughs>
0: I mean, obviously, acting was very much in the genes within your families. I mean, when when were you first aware about the acting dynasty in the Humphreys family?
1: I suppose I was always aware of it. We lived in Hollywood. So my early memories are Los Angeles and my dad trying to make it as an actor there. I was only there for five years. I came to England when I was just before I was seven years old. But yes, it was always there. My dad was quite an actor's actor. You know, he had the amazing whiskey and cigarette voice. And, uh, you know, and he talked about his uh, legacy from his uh, actually far more successful father in the end, my grandfather, Cecil Humphreys, who was a Broadway actor. I mean, a British actor, but went out to Broadway in 36 and never came back. Did a lot of quite big Hollywood movies as well, like Wuthering Heights with Laurence Olivier and The Razor's Edge with Tyrone Power. So I was aware of that. And then on my mother's side as well, her parents were both actors in Norway. And my mother always said that I took after her father, both in looks and a certain wildness of behavior. <laughs> the imaginative uh, side of me was, was making up stories from an early age. I think that's what I mean, even though the acting legacy is so strong, I think the the, the storytelling legacy of my background has been the major driver for me my dad my dad wrote my norwegian grandfather was probably better known as a writer than an actor so the writing side of it was always there as well but essentially i suppose if i had to pick one word for my gravestone i don't know why i'm talking about gravestone i'm not feeling particularly peaky at the moment but (laughs) i'm
0: I'm glad to hear it (laughs) um,
1: but would be storyteller because i'd love to tell stories in any form I, i directed a play last year and that's a form of storytelling
0: how did your own career begin? Did you study acting at drama school? Was that
1: the conventional route? <laughs> Yes. Well, it, it was slightly, I suppose, slightly unconventional in that I wasn't going to be an actor. I was bucking the, the genetic inheritance and the family trend because my mother, who wasn't an actor, uh, but was obviously married to one and had seen him suffer, really. My dad wasn't terribly successful, to be honest. And also she grew up with parents who were actors and that led to a lot of moving and uncertainty and all that stuff. So she really didn't want either of her children to be. And my elder brother you know, went off into electronics and was the, the white sheep. With the family I was heading to university to read well initially law because I had no idea what I wanted to do and then, of course, I got cast in the lead in the school play, and then all the blood inheritance kicked in. It was <laughs> Edward Albee's the Zoo story. It's an amazing one-act play, and that was it. I was hooked. So university went on the back burner, and I decided uh, to go to drama school. So I I took a year off first, and uh, and somehow survived it because I did. I spent that year as a motorcycle messenger in London, which was madness but of course is paid dividends now because I, I write so much about London now uh you know historical London that I I know it so well but then I went to the Guildhall School of Music and Drama for three years.
0: A lot of actors who join the bill as a regular it's their first big breakthrough part whereas you're actually joining with after like a decade in television already under your belt and a very successful hit with AD and Domini.
1: Yes that was the one that uh took me away to Hollywood for the best part of three years, which is a place I had always wanted to return to as having loved it as a child, you know, uh, sunny California was where I was drawn to. I'd sort of gone back into English regional theater uh, and I was down at Exeter doing barefoot in the park at the North Northcott when I got the call to go up and audition for a, you know, a smallish ensemble role. Actually they were putting an ensemble together for this biblical Roman epic shooting in Tunisia. And I just think I was just on fire as an actor at the time. I was loving being back on stage. It was, and I, when I met the director, he just took one look at me and said, yeah, I'm going to screen test you for Caleb. And I thought, Caleb, he, he mentioned him. He's the Jewish gladiator. I thought, you know, I'm, I'm pretty Norwegian, Northern European, you know, and I thought, well, okay, you know, humor the guy, took, took the script, well, you know, we did a screen test and they cast me. So I went to Tunisia for 10 months for, for someone who loved history like I did. It was amazing. And also, I, you know, one of the very few skills I do possess is, is a sort of ability with weaponry. You know, I essentially became an actor so I could leap around with bladed weaponry. So casting me as a as a gladiator was great. And I got to, you know, fight in a coliseum down there. And, you know, I, I was a, a, a net and trident man. But it was a great part as well. It wasn't just all physical. I aged from 18 to 60 in it. It was a big turnaround for me. It took me off to Hollywood, which in the end wasn't what I wanted. You know, I lived there for a bit, but I... In the end, I decided I didn't want a career in American television, so I came back to England in 86.
0: And I, I saw your Dempsey and Makepeace the other day, <laughs> having a rather <laughs> fun scene downstairs with Dempsey and Makepeace sussing out your drug den.
1: <laughs> oh God, that's right. I was a sort of uh, coke dealer or something yeah, weird. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that that was strange. The only thing I remember about that performance was that I wore a diamond earring. <laughs> you know, I used to occasionally uh, basically root a performance in a in a prop, which I'm I'm very big on props or a piece of jewellery, or a moustache. And, and you know, some, sometimes there's a role that just sort of, that's it, you're, you're basically done. When I did Coronation Street, which was a terrific experience, it, the script I got was just amazing. And I played this sort of wide-boy Londoner called Clive Parnell, all fake tan and bling, and it was written in the script that I would have a Vicks inhaler and use it like a sort of baton to conduct uh, the, my scene in, in The Rover's Return. <laughs> For me, as a, as a kind of proppy actor, that was an absolute bloody gift.
0: Well, you have a claim to fame. You are the first regular actor from the bill after finishing the series to join Coronation Street.
1: Is that right? Oh, that is, well, that's quite the claim. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> Many have done it since, but no, you were the first.
1: I think one of the reasons is that you couldn't get more diverse characters than Richard Turnham <laughs> uh, and Clive Parnell, <laughs> no. you know, uh, with the, the sort of more bottled up, uh, you know, middle class English guy that Turnham was to this sort of wide boy Londoner that Parnell was. Turnham was a role that I suppose was a little... Closer to who I am in terms of background and everything. Uh, whereas, you know, like like a lot of actors, so many of us are um, really all character actors. You know, that's what we love. We love to play the diverse characters. And even though we might sort of slip into those sort of the leading man roles and have and have that sort of more straightforward look sometimes, it's not that I haven't done that and haven't enjoyed doing that. But for me, the buzz is always to, uh, to, to take on something more away from me. And so, you know, to, to play. Within the space of five years, a Jewish gladiator, a middle class English policeman and a Cockney wide boy was was marvelous. You know, I tried to bring all these different things to Turner because he could have just been too much of a straight arrow. I think I remember when I joined being the sort of uh, the researcher that I am and, and also someone who I mean, this particularly plays into my writing later on, is very interested in where a character comes from. So how do you begin? So I, I remember writing a sort of mini essay about Turner and filling in all the blanks that weren't on the page of the scripts I was given. You know, not, the writers were superb, but, you know, they didn't do a lot of uh, background. And so I wrote this whole um, backstory for him and then gave it to the producers. And they said, you know, we're going to actually use some of this. You know, I wrote about his parents, the idea of service being very much part of his family. You know, I made him a hockey blue at Cambridge or something. But also, I think what was intriguing for me was, I mean, I, you know, I knew my job. I'd been hired to wind up the Cockneys. That was that was essentially it. Turnham's there. You know what they I mean, I was told, you know, first day you're a seagull, mate. You know, not not in the script, but 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 the, I think one of the police advisers said uh, you're a seagull. And I said, really, what's a seagull? I'm going to be slightly rude here, Oliver. And I'm sure you're OK with this. But uh, he said, well, the seagulls, you know, they they come into the, you know, position like this, they fly high above the other coppers and shit on them as they go past. <laughs> you know, there was no way I was going to be there long. You know, I, I was serving my time, but I was a Cambridge University graduate. They were going to have me off to Special Branch as quickly as possible. So, you know, there I was, and, and they created this lovely um, antipathy between me and Quinnon, played by the wonderful Andrew Paul. And so, you know, he had the goods on me because, uh, you know, I'd been a bit of a rogue at the previous station, you know, and, and got involved with a superior's wife, apparently. So so there was all this other stuff to, to Turnham. I do remember, you know, just asking for various things as an actor. Like we we had to do this uh, scene where we all sat around, you know, waiting for something. And I said, well, look, I want to read a newspaper. They said, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll bring in the, the Telegraph or something. I said, no, Turnham is a Guardian reader. <laughs> and they looked at me and went, yeah, all right. So there I am sitting in one corner, probably the only copper at Sun Hill who ever read The Guardian. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you were an established actor by then so was this a straight offer of a regular role in the bill
1: well actually it's it's quite a fun story because it's a um, it's a real actors and a, a real agent story this actually you know i mean just to briefly fill in i'd come back from america i'd gone off on a six month tour playing jack absolute in the rivals who i later ended up writing novels about though personally i wasn't having such a good time my my marriage was ending i was a bit lost at that point you know i'd had the big hollywood thing I'd married and I was now sort of feeling I was failing this major adult test as it was, you know, having had a pretty steady, thriving career. I was now in my early 30s and wondering, okay, what next? I've done Hollywood. I've done some fairly big British TV and I've played a lot of theatre. But, you know, is this it? And so I was actually going through a bit of a sort of, oh, I'm not even sure I'm, you know, maybe I should just go traveling for a couple of years or something, just get my head together. And and I was in a bit of that state when I switched agents. And I joined this wonderful British agent who, you know, if there are actors out there, they'll go, oh, yeah, Barry Brown. Now, Barry Brown was, was really, you know, he was one of those old, old lovey agents, you know, just been around for years, um, liked to take his three-hour lunches, you know. <laughs> so I joined Barry. And about a week later, Barry was visiting a friend of his in hospital. He might have been a client even. The guy's wife was Paddy O'Connell, who was the casting director on The Bill. And so they're standing around her husband's uh, you know, hospital bed. And, uh, you know, he's, he's brought the flowers and the grapes and whatever. And they're chatting away. And, of course, Barry's an agent. So he immediately turns to the wife and says, uh, so, you know, who are you casting on The Bill at the moment? And she says, well, look, I'm casting a Cambridge University graduate, but I know your list and you don't have anyone of that if fits that description. And Barry looked at her and said, Chris Humphreys. And she said, you don't have Chris Humphreys. He said, I do as of last week. He, she said. Oh, that is actually a very good idea. Send him in. And I always had that vision of like that scene in the movie Airplane where the person's sort of flatlining while everyone completely. I, I just had to imagine the poor client lying on the bed, you know, with this flat line going on and, or gasping for oxygen as Barry does a deal. So anyway, yeah, they, they pulled me in for an interview and they cast me straight away. And they needed me straight away as well because they had my very first script was actually an undercover And uh, they want they wanted someone to come in and pretend to be, I think, a contract hitman, actually.
0: That's right. It's a a Kraken episode called Make My Day. I think it's your second line is the only people that could have given you references are six feet under. Oh, (laughs) really?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I am going. That's a great line. I'm going to have to I'm going to have to watch all this again. This is great.
0: And at the end of the episode, you go back having done this fantastic undercover job and Burnside says to Cryer, bright lad, you've got there, Bob, a lot of bottle. And Cryer says, yeah, we'll put your uniform back on, son. I'll find something useful for you to do. And, and the music kicks in as you walk off to the locker, you know.
1: Oh, did I get the uh, the drums on that
0: episode? You get the drums on your first episode, and and indeed full circle, you get the drums on your last episode as well, which I thought was a nice
1: touch. You know, I only remember the last one. I didn't remember that I got them on the first one because you know we were all that was our that was our one major rivalry: who would get the boom 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 as we walked off, <laughs> you know. That was, uh, oh, that's great. And it's funny enough, I'll tell you something other quick about that episode. Chris Ellison, who, you know, I think is a fantastic actor and a a great guy and really funny man. There was a line he said, which I still say to this day from that episode. Whenever I say, if someone says to me, makes sense, I always add what Ellison said in that. His line to me was, makes sense, makes a lot of sense. And that's what I say, I still say that to this day. I can't say makes sense without saying makes a lot of sense. Your second episode,
0: you go on the beat with Eric Richard.
1: Oh, this was a good This was a really good one. Oh, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> you run, in, run into a house and uh, a cry gets knocked down the stairs. I and mean, then you go in like Rocky Balboa and, and, and knock the living daylights out of this guy.
1: You know, that was fantastic. That was what I considered my real intro, partly because I got to work with Eric, who is an absolute gem. I had a beer with him last year. I hadn't seen him in 15 years and uh, we, we had a beer together and it was, it's all, I always had a great chat with Eric because Eric is a, one of those guys. He's a real actor's actor. He has, you know, he loves the craft. Uh, we would talk theatre all the time, but in terms of of character, that was fascinating because it was the first chance to show what Turnham also had, which he had a slight sort of um, psychopathic streak in him. You know, <laughs> he liked to 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 get stuck in. That's the day he really blows it, and of course Cryer gets um gets beaten up because of Turnham's uh, over exuberance and desire to uh, have a go. But you know, it was, it was the funniest story about that episode was that um, the original script came down and. And it had me whipping out my truncheon and setting two, right? So I was quite looking forward to that, being a you know, bit of a weapons guy. And then the uh, police advisor came up to me. We had these retired cops on the staff, basically, who would come and vet all the scripts for, for authenticity, which was grand, because it was really authentic. That's why the police loved the show. Um, anyway, this, this uh, retired DS came up to me and said, oh, uh, Chris, you're not going to be able to use the truncheon. I went, oh, no, really? I was really looking forward to that. He said, no, no, police really don't hit people with truncheons. And I said, oh, I I thought they did. He said, no, no, not, not if at all possible, because uh, there's uh, all this paperwork you have to fill out afterwards. I went, what? He said, you hit someone with a truncheon. It's days filling out paperwork. I said, oh, I said, so um, what do you hit them with? He said, oh, uh, uh, a torch, you know, one of those big rubber torches. You hit him with that. I went, what? (laughs) He said, yeah, hit him with a rubber torch. No paperwork. (laughs) (laughs) oh <laughs> um, i know it was it cracked me up it absolutely cracked me up i mean it's sinister as well of course but it yeah. absolutely cracked me up and of course in the end i think i just did it with my fists but yeah yeah um, you
0: give a fantastic right hook it kn- knocks a guy flying
1: i actually kept my truncheon well you should well thank god the the, the show is closed now because they'd have <laughs> me now because i i actually just thought i'm taking my truncheon i took my epaulettes as well and my truncheon, I love my truncheon because it had a little pink pig on the end of it, which I which I thought was uh, suitable irony and all that. <laughs> I, I like that idea. One time I was sat there in a police car waiting to drive around a corner. I had the, the radio telling me, you know, for action, I was going to drive around the corner. This woman pulls up beside me. This is in Hammersmith. And she said, is it all right if I park there? And I looked at her and I went, all right with me, love, and I drove off. <laughs> I always felt very bad about that because you probably got a ticket. Whenever you have catering set up on the bill, we drew real policemen like flies to honeypots, right? <laughs> Police love a free meal. They'll pretend they're doing security, but they're not <laughs> doing that. We didn't have security in those days. We just fetched up, right, which was always interesting. There we were on location, and these two traffic cops show up, and, and we have lunch with them. It's always great to talk to them. You get some good information. And this one cop says to me, So tell me why you never do stories about traffic policemen. And I went, Oh, I don't know. He said, because we're very interesting. You know, I said, well, I'm sure you are. And he told lots of stories and I thought, well, they are interesting. You know, you know, I'll definitely mention it to the script department. He said, another thing, you guys, it's annoying because we all graduate from Hendon College like you would have done, but none of you wear the tie pin. And I go, really? Well, that is interesting. I'll, I'll definitely make mention that to wardrobe. I'll make sure they get me one because sort of thing, you know, Turnham would have uh, worn. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, mate, have mine. And he took it off his tie and gave it to me. So I put it, I didn't put it straight on the tie then because of continuity, but I wore it in every subsequent episode. Oh, wonderful. When the show finished, I thought, well, that's mine, not theirs. And I took it and I now have it. I have a fedora, which I wear quite often. And I have it in the hat band.
0: Oh, fantastic. In series six, your part really does get a lot bigger and you're in a lot more episodes. You start being on the beat a lot more. In a, in an episode called "Carry Your Bags, Sir," you chase a suspect along the canal, and he takes to swipe at you with a spanner. You end up falling in it.
1: Yeah, I mean that was that was hysterical. They they came to me and they said, "Right, we would like to drop you in the canal," and I said, uh, "No, thank you very much. so I'd probably use something slightly older and more Anglo-Saxon." <laughs> and they said, "No, no, it's safe. We're, we've done all the tests. Here's the chemical report. There's no because you know I was thinking of rats and vials disease and all that horrible stuff." Yeah. And they said, "No, look, we'll, you'll be in a you'll be in a wet." suit it'll be fine there's no sign of rat infestation in the part of the canal we're doing it you know and i went, and i'm always game for a laugh so i said yeah all right then we did the sequence and i got totally into it of course and and i suppose what i was surprised at as many people might be surprised though perhaps i should have known this canals are so shallow right <laughs> they're they're only like you know five foot deep you think oh it must be like a river but it's not at all it's just for barges so so you know there i was so i fall in And then once I'm in, I think, well, look, let's get some shots. And so I I say, look, bring me a bottle of Perrier. And they went, what? (laughs) You know, it it seemed a bit odd for an actor to be demanding Perrier. I said, no, give me some, give me some of that Perrier. So I then took a mouthful of Perrier, ducked under the water again, got up and spat out the water. (laughs) So, and which they loved, of course. But the funny thing was that later that that night, that very night, it was a summer. And I'd spotted this lovely pub opposite where the shoot was with a lovely canal side garden. And I thought, oh, I'll just go there. So I went with a couple of uh, people from the bill on, on the production side, actually. And we went and we were having a lovely pint sitting in the back. And I say, yeah, this is where I did the shot, you know, and, and as I look across. This huge bloody rat comes lolloping out right where I jumped in and ran off. And I thought, oh my God, I've got Viles disease. Oh, no. <laughs> yes, yeah, that very day. No.
0: <laughs> You didn't catch that suspect, but in the very next episode you're back, it's an episode called Officers and Gentlemen. You catch a man who's uh, using a stolen credit card in a in a music shop and you have a chase up some steps, but you, you get him.
1: Ah, oh, yes, that's right. Uh, I don't think the director let me say, all right, my son, you're nicked, which I wanted to do. But of course, Turnham wouldn't really have said that. So she was quite, <laughs> quite wise to restrain me.
0: Yeah, there's a good scene in the. It's in an episode called Chinese Whispers, and uh, you've just had a nice cup of tea with Peter Ellis as as Brownlow. Not not something any of the other regular uniform officers would have enjoyed. And then you're down in the locker, and Quinn says, "Oh, temptation shouldn't be in the way this time." I hear his wife is a bit of an old dog. <sighs> yeah, you slam his locker shut and block him being able to leave. And then uh, Graham Cole walks in, uh, you know, stops you from probably doing him some serious damage.
1: Oh yeah, I I remember that very clearly. And you know, every time you mention the name of an actor, I go, oh yeah, because they were such terrific actors. Everyone, you know, to work with the ensemble work in that show, and because it was a complete team. And any time you got to act with any of them, you you had to bring your best game, you know, because everyone was really good. But but also, you know, we were all. About the moment, all about working together. It was, um, you know, the scripts were excellent, the the crew were wonderful, the camera work was amazing. I thought, especially as as we had to shoot it so fast, um, you know, th- these were these were very quickly shot. If if you as an actor asked for another take. They might give you one more. They probably wouldn't give you two, you know. So you had to really bring your game to the moment. Graham was a great guy. Graham and I had this. I can't remember what episode it was, but I remember he and I chatting about it. And he and I were the two big men. We were the two tallest guys among the bobbies. And so we had a you know, we thought we'd play it. We played a moment of are you and I going to go? You know, are we going now? And, and we both backed off, but we discussed it beforehand. And so there is that moment when Graham and, you know, Graham's such a lovely man. You know, we talk to each other about it and we'd say, you know, what can we bring to this moment? Which I think is it was definitely one of the strengths of the bill.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a lovely episode It's called Kidding. In mean, an episode called Workers in Uniform, Andrew Paul has borrowed your patrol car and then scratched it. Then you're up in front of the late, great Colin Tarrant, uh, calling you a sloppy officer. I love
1: Colin. I was, I was devastated when I heard the news about Colin. Uh, Colin, when he joined, he joined a few months after me, and... People were inevitably and invariably lovely when a new actor is, but a new regular joining, it's, it's a fairly nerve wracking, you know, you're joining one of the best established shows in the country, very high visibility. And I remember Colin being really sweet, uh, because I had a, quite a few scenes with him in that, in that episode that he joined. And he came up to me at the end of the day and he said, thank you very much. And I said, what? Well, and he said, well, just thank you for kind of looking after me out there. And I went, mate, you know, we've all been here. Welcome aboard, you know. A lovely, lovely man, terrific actor.
0: You're dragging a gentleman into custody, and he says, in my country, I'm an entertainer, an artist. And then you respond and say, well, in my country,
1: you're a drunk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Turnham had a bit of a wit to him. That was, uh, it was, uh, and they wrote for that. You know, that, that was the other great thing about the writers. You know, they'd they would pick up on something you did. And they would think, oh, okay, he can do that stuff. So I think, you know, when you point out that maybe I got some more of the wry humour, I suppose that's what the the writers picked up on. You go into a pub with Sita Indrani. Ah, Sita. I was going to ask you about her. Sita was lovely. and, And yeah, she and I got on very well
0: you take on a, a monster of a man called Mad Mike. He's played by Terry Richards and the uh, kicks you into a table of drinks. And it looks like you did that yourself. It looks like it's you.
1: Yes. I'm, I'm pretty sure that was me. I mean, you know, we had great stunt guys, obviously, and they wouldn't risk us on anything too serious. But something like that, I'd done a lot of stage fighting and I could definitely get away with that. So I'm sure I'm sure I did do that. And Terry Richards, yes, I remember him. He was enormous. <laughs> but I'm 6'2", and I'm not used to standing in a bar looking up at people. It was quite, <laughs> it was quite an odd feeling.
0: The major episode for you is a a Kraken episode called Citadel. Oh, yeah. You're being investigated by MI-11. Because this investigation is going on, you've been given a rather tedious task of guarding a hole (laughs) with a lovely old actor called Michael Bilton.
1: Oh, he was great. Oh, he had a blast. (laughs) He keeps going. And I I do remember one of my lines. I I had to take this deep sigh and look at him and go, not busy yourself today, sir. That's exactly right. (laughs) And that was a great because that was that was basically it wasn't my final episode, was it? But it was my penultimate episode, because this is the one where I'm being interviewed. Christopher Godwin, another excellent actor, and he came in to interview me about, you know, am I fit to go to special branch, given that I've donated money to the IRA, it seemed, and also uh, had an affair with the uh, former chief superintendent's wife at the previous station. So which is what Quinn had been alluding to all the time. So. I do remember that episode. That was a lovely one to, uh, to, you know, when when I knew, I mean, I knew my time was up, obviously, on the bill. But but it was, as you say, a lot of actors just didn't get the exit story, and to to know that they were doing that for me was a, was a, definitely a privilege. To be honest, I was originally told I was going to be on it for three months. So the fact that I got close to a year out of it was was great. But they just, you know, they said, you know, we try to reflect, you know, what actually happens in a police station, and Turnham wouldn't stay around he's off he's got to go off to special branch so he's a he's a high flyer you know there's that moment of oh but then but then afterwards I you know I, my my travel plans have been interrupted you know I was going to go off traveling remember so so suddenly you know uh, I could go traveling with a healthy bank account behind me so it's great
0: and quite a compliment isn't it to go to to special branch you know that's quite a cool
1: thing for a character isn't it yeah well I was I kept waiting for the spin-off series, you know. <laughs> yeah. It would have just been called Turnham. And, you know, I'd have, I'd have been the big cop star of Britain now rather than lying on a bed in Salt Spring Island, British <laughs> Columbia. <so. laughs>
0: and you do get mentioned after you leave. I don't know if you ever know, knew this, but, I mean, some some characters go and they never get mentioned again. But, but Reg Hollis talks about what ever happened to Turnham in a, in a scene in Mark Powley's last ever episode, actually?
1: Oh, well, that's good. That's nice to know. No, I didn't know that. Well, thanks for telling me that. I also, um, I did visit, um, because I all my stuff was done at Balby Road, you know, off Ladbroke Road. Yeah. And, and then they moved to Merton. And I went down and visited you know just to have a beer with some of the guys um, after the move, and uh, you know went into the studio and it was so, uh and, and the complex there is so different from the rather ramshackle Barlby Road, which we loved you know Actors actually had their own dressing rooms or, or shared with one other guy, whereas you know when I did it, it was more like a rugby team you had the blokes dressing room and you had the girls' dressing room, and that was it. When I went to Merton, I walked into the lobby and there was about 10 large framed black and white photographs and I was in one of them. So that was that was was nice. Yeah, yeah. You then went
0: more or less straight into Coronation Street. Presumably your life changed in terms of a a recognition for the British public. I'm guessing you got recognised from being in the bill.
1: Yes, it's interesting. You know, I've got a wanderer's heart, right? I've always been a wanderer. Uh, You know, this comes from my family moving around so much, I suppose. And and I find it hard to stay put at that time. I was really sort of seeking to go other places. And so after Corrie, I thought, I'll just go and visit Vancouver for a summer you know, hang out on on the beaches and stuff, and and then ended up getting cast in A Midsummer Night's Dream in a Shakespeare Festival and stayed five years before I went back to England. So I think my problem sometimes as an actor has been that I haven't recognized when there might be a bit of wind in my sails, and I should probably stay put. You know, and I I don't regret any of this, by the way, because uh, all the choices have led to me you know, being a writer and all that sort of stuff. But in terms of an acting career, yes, I think my recognizability factor had gone up after the bill, um, you know, and maybe was aided by Coronation Street. And that if I'd hung around, you know, who knows? I mean, I'm not I'm not a great one for going what if, what if, because as I say, I'm I'm pretty happy now. But um, having had those two sort of quite big successes, I then buggered off to Canada for five and a half years. I came back Partly because I went, hang on, I had a whole life in England and I'd met my wife and we decided to move back to England. One of the reasons being I'd never appeared on a West End stage as my father and my grandfather had done. And I really wanted to do that. And and within six months, I was in a big musical at the Victoria Palace called uh, Always. So I came back and uh, re-energized my career that way but sometimes I think yeah you just sort of you know I, I don't necessarily pick the best times to leave you know I haven't been strategic sometimes in my thinking about a career but you never know I mean acting such a up and down business people might have gone uh, we've had enough of him
0: <laughs> well you've had one of the most interesting acting careers since the bill I've got a few favourites here, if you don't mind humouring me with with some of my favourites of your roles. Not at all. Well, the first, and I grew up with this, you voiced a character in The Hurricanes.
1: I voiced several characters in The Hurricanes, I did. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the the cartoon, yeah, the the soccer team, yeah, that was great. That was in Vancouver. Helmut von Beethoven's (laughs) a star striker for the team, yeah.
0: (sighs) In terms of recognisable cartoons here, I mean, The Hurricanes... Action Man, Inspector Gadget. I mean, these are like really iconic cartoons.
1: Yeah, well, actually, you know, my most famous, I mean, I don't know if this was as big in the UK as it was in North America, but this is what actually makes people go, ooh. I was the original voice of Salem the Cat in Sabrina the Teenage Witch. No. I was. No way. I didn't know this. This is amazing. Yeah, I know. I know. I was the original Salem in the pilot episode which they shot in Vancouver. I then went in post and recorded The Voice uh, in a studio in Vancouver while the director was down in L.A. on a telephone patch. It was always quite fun to do things like that. But then they uh, they relocated to Los Angeles, and so they wanted an actor down there to do it. So uh, people of a certain age who grew up with that series go, You were Salem? Oh, my God. <laughs>
0: oh thank you for sharing that that's a, that's an exclusive I didn't know about that here we go <laughs> um, well, I must ask about this because I'm rather excited to be talking to the man who taught sean connery's character in highlander how to be a swordsman well e-
1: yes i mean uh, alas i never got to act with mr connery but um yes yes i am an immortal it's true <laughs> yeah. though i always i always found it a bit annoying that i'm a dead immortal i mean i'm not sure how that works even but yes i i was graham ash the original teacher of uh, you know duncan MacLeod. i taught him and then he Mentions to me that oh of course you taught Ramirez so uh, again one of those roles that you know people go ooh you know because you're you're connected to a um a big legacy there that's one of those uh, shows that is legendary and people still watching it like crazy and yeah you know.
0: it must be wonderful to presumably being a swordsman is a is an almighty bonus I mean being able to use and wield a sword but also do it safely that you don't harm your
1: fellow actors and... unless you really don't like them. Um <laughs> I, well I was a fencer at school I loved I always loved swords and I was there was my main sport when I was at school I was a saber champion and all that sort of stuff um, and then when I went to drama school I did a lot of stage fighting and then um, and then have managed to parlay that it's i don't tap dance and I'm not a great singer so it is my only skill really and I've managed to to deploy it on on a number of occasions I mean I even in Canada I even became a fight choreographer for some time so yes it is useful and it has served me quite well in terms of those sort of I mean, The Gladiator, that was one of them. Highlander, yeah, I was cast at least partly because of my sword skills. And and then Zorro as well, I play. Funny enough, that's become quite a big thing. I was contacted by the Zorro fan group, and I'm apparently one of the three best villains they ever had on that. I was only on one episode. Sir Miles Thackeray, the finest swordsman in Europe, and, and a total cad, of course. I use it a lot in my writing. I mean, my my books are often what would be termed swashbucklers. I wrote a novel called Shakespeare's Rebel, which combined my two greatest passions in a way, which are Hamlet and swords. And I wrote a, a novel about William Shakespeare's fight choreographer at the time that Shakespeare was writing Hamlet. And he's, he's also his oldest friend and he's an actor and he's a drunk. And it's, a, it's an examination of that world and, and the world of the globe, the world of theatre. So, so my my sword fights uh, any sort of fights I, I have in my books tend to be pretty well choreographed and usually quite interesting I think without being over technical but you don't want to over you don't want to do over technical stuff as a writer because people just go well I have no idea what you're talking about so the whole weaponry and the whole fighting thing has been a a component of my life I suppose and and has been useful both as an actor and a writer.
0: Do you think the Chris Humphreys at the start of Your acting career must be 40 years, you know, in in the business. Oh,
1: my God. Yes, you're right. You're right. It's it's next year. It's 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. When you
0: look at what you've done, do you think you 40 years ago would would be happy with what you've achieved so far?
1: Oh, uh yeah, probably, you know, actors are never entirely happy. If I sit back and look at it and as you as you've just described it, of course, you know, I've had amazing times. Um I've traveled the world, I've played some great parts. I, I got to play Hamlet for God's sake on stage, you know, which was always uh, always the dream. No, I mean absolutely. If I if I was looking ahead from from the business back then, I I'm sure I'd have been pretty pleased. There there's gaps I got sucked into and I don't I you know I didn't mind this at all because I've had some great adventures on it but I did get sucked into the whole TV world quite early on and I think if I could go back I might try to re- uh, balance it out a bit more with a little more theater I'm I've done quite a lot of theater but I think I set out to be a sort of classical actor and I've done less. I've done maybe five Shakespeare's over, over my life. And, and so maybe there, there, there would have been a, a bit of a balance back that way. But really, really, to be honest, I cannot complain. I mean, look, look what I, I've, I've had the most amazing career. I've had the privilege to work with uh, some of the best actors on the planet, you know, and some of the unsung ones as well. You know, it's a, to be able to do scenes with those actors on the bill, that crack ensemble. You know, it was a, it was a buzz every day. No, I think I'd, I'd probably look forward and go, well, if that's it, that's it. But you know, I'm still, you know, I'm still an actor. I'm still keen. I love my writing, and I've, I've got lots of exciting projects ahead in that line. You know, my my 16th novel will be coming out next year, and uh, I've got lots of other plans and uh, and ambitions in the, in that line. But you know, I've got a few roles in me yet, and uh, you know, I, I as an acty. And until they're actually shoveling dirt in your face, you've still got another role in you. So I'm looking forward to all that, too.
0: What is your message to fans of The Bill who are listening to this? And I'm a fan who's pretty much discovered your work on the series 28 years later, you know. Wow. What what does it mean to you? And and would you have any idea that, you know, when you were filming it, nearly 30 years ago, that there'd be some, some West Country lad interviewing <laughs> you about it over, over Skype, and you'd be in Canada. You
1: know? oh, no, I would not have had that idea at the time at all, no. Uh, you know, it's interesting, I mean, I, I most actors don't spend a lot of time worrying about legacy they're too concerned about the next gig you know and and it's always interesting as well that you you finish a job but you move on and you think i remember the first job i had i thought well i'm going to stay friends with these people forever and of course i have hardly seen any of them ever since and that's always the case We are gypsies and we wander all the time. And so you you meet up with this great group of people and you work very intensely with them and you think, you know, I'll love them forever. And you do love them forever. You just maybe never see them again. So at the time, you know, you don't think that you don't think, oh, yes, they'll be remembering Richard Turnham in 30 years time because you think, (laughs) no, I'm just, you know, I've moved on. It's lovely to know. It's lovely to know that people are still out there enjoying your work. Of course, you know that. I mean, you do hope. When you lay anything down on film, that it will stand the test of time. I think the bill does. I think it's uh, it's not one of those shows that's going to date particularly. You know, if if you hadn't got in touch with me, I wouldn't have thought about it. But now you have, and I've been able to talk to you about all this. It's you know, it's it's uh, brought back some lovely memories of some excellent times, and also some um, yeah, a bit of pride as well. I'm I'm very proud to have been P.C. Turnham in a great show. You know, it's, it's way up there on my list of credits as, as one of those things I will look back on and go, yep, yeah, you know, did that.
0: Well, I'm sure everyone listening to this will be as grateful as I am that you've, you've given your time for free. And, and if there is a, is there a charity you support But if listeners want to donate a couple of quid to?
1: I think one of the things that, um, that I am concerned about, that everyone is concerned about, of course, is the environment these days. And so if they have a good uh, local environmental charity, that's perhaps working locally to uh, preserve some of the wonderful countryside around uh, locally is great but if you can't find one locally then greenpeace are a fantastic organization too
0: I'm glad you feel proud of your time on the bill. You certainly wore the uniform with with pride. You looked the part, you gave a fantastic performance and I'm really chuffed to have been talking to you and celebrating your life and career so far. I'm sure there's plenty of gold us and I'm going to be enjoying reading the rest of the French execution and then dipping into the rest of your your novels and I'm so grateful. So uh, on behalf of everyone listening, Chris Humphreys, thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you for the opportunity, Oliver. It's been very, very good fun.
0: My huge thanks to Chris Humphreys for giving his time and sharing his brilliant memories of the bill. I thoroughly enjoyed researching Chris's career. To be honest, I still feel like I've only scratched the surface. He's a really fascinating man, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed his company over Skype. As an author, Chris writes as C.C. Humphreys. Perhaps you'll all join me in starting a collection of his very exciting novels. I bought mine brand new from Amazon. They're also available from Waterstones and you can read about them all on Chris's website at cchumphreys.com and you can get in touch with the great man on Twitter at HumphreysCC. Greenpeace defends the natural world and promotes peace by investigating, exposing and confronting environmental abuse. And their website is greenpeace.org.uk or as Chris suggested you might have a local cause that you'd like to support. And all do our bit to care for Mother Nature. Now, stand by for a look ahead to our next podcast. I teased on Twitter and Facebook that I was en route to interview an actor who notched up over 300 episodes of a Bill over a 10-year period. I received quite a flurry of accurate guesses and spent a very enjoyable afternoon in the fine company of the one and only Mr Andrew McIntosh.
1: Next time on The Bill Podcast. In fact, the
0: bill was fairly pioneering in using handheld cameras, predominantly. Even interiors were largely handheld. Sometimes it'd be on tripods, but very rarely on rails or anything like that. Generally, it was this wobble vision idea. Because it was sort of drama documentary, that was the that was the flavour of it. And also, of course, the thing about it always being about the police's professional lives. It never went into their home lives during my time, anyway. And I I totally supported that ethos. I thought
1: that actually made the build different, made it more interesting.